Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. All right. Good morning. It's great to be with you all. If you have not heard, my family and I are going to be heading to Mankato, Minnesota, Minnesota State. Horns up. Let's go Mavericks. There we go. Thank you, Micah Smith. Love that. Uh, Let's just all go ahead and lock that in. Horns up, people. Okay. When I say Mavericks, you just just say it with me. Horns up. let's, Let's go Mavericks. Man, I have two years until we go. And if that is the sorry excuse for a horns up that I hear two years from this day, I will have failed as a church planning candidate. Now, we are super excited to go. Uh, when people ask us, why did we pick Mankato? Why did we pick Minnesota State? There's really two reasons that it came down to for Natalie and I that were really simple. The first reason was that we really believe that we have a unique fit and ability to have an effective ministry in Mankato as a family and as a church, that there's just this unique uh, fit for us. Uh, for example, yesterday we were at Shields in Mankato. We were actually there this weekend. And at one point in the Maverick section, uh, this lady walks up and she grabs an Iowa Hawkeye shirt and she looks at her husband. And she goes, hey, how about this one? He goes, yeah, that one looks good. And so I said, you guys shopping for janitor rags? which killed him, just slayed. It was great, Hawkeye, janitor rags. Every time Mark Pingle wears Hawkeye stuff, I say to him like, hey, you wore your janitor clothes today. Well done, Mark. Uh, But they're like, oh my word, he's from Waverly. She went to Iowa. The Shields employee who's an MSU student that was helping them, he's from Council Bluffs. And so we begin talking and I say, hey, so Colin, uh, have you heard of, like he's asking us, why'd you come up here? I said, well, have you ever heard of Salt Company? He goes, yeah, one of my friends from high school was baptized at Salt Company at Iowa State this year. And I'm like, yeah, well, actually, we're coming up here to start a salt company. He goes, oh, I didn't know we're getting one of those. And I'm like, you are. It's going to be awesome. And so there's just this familiarity of the community. In so many ways, it feels like Cedar Falls or Ankeny, Iowa. But then there's portions that feel like the east side of Des Moines or where there's a little bit more need. And it's just this amazing community. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The landscape looks like Iowa until you get to Mankato. And then once you get there, the Minnesota River runs right through the middle, creates this beautiful topography and timber and ravines. It's gorgeous. We hiked yesterday near like this huge waterfall. There are waterfalls two and a half hours away from here in Minnesota. And that's where I will be all the time. It's going to be incredible. So we just really believe it's going to be a place where our family's going to flourish, where we're going to have just this unique ability to reach that community because the culture is so similar to here. But the second reason why we are so excited is not only is it this place that in many ways reminds us of communities in Iowa, but it's also this place with incredible need and opportunity for the gospel. So on Friday, we met with a pastor and his wife, Matt and Rachel Sims. They're leading a church there that they planted in 2016. It's a great church. We're excited to partner with them. Uh, But one of the things that they began to express to us is that their estimation is that there are fewer than 200 students out of 15,000 students at MSU who are regularly involved in a Christian ministry. And it's not just that there's a lack of involvement, there's a lack of opportunity. There are only a handful of ministries and churches even doing anything to pay attention to students. And so what that represents is less than 1% of Minnesota State students are actively involved in a campus ministry. Now, to put that into perspective, because many of you are like, man, we just keep sending staff and sending leaders and sending friends from this church. I know gospel goodbyes are hard, but here's what is true of Salt Cedar Falls right now. In March, the Thursday night after spring break, we had 379 students here, which is over 4% of UNI's campus. 
the most conservative estimate of our kickoff is that we will have over 6% of UNI's campus here. That's before Wartburg even starts, as a, like, starts classes. That's what's present here. But there's campuses all across our nation and only two and a half hours away that have less than 1% of the student body involved in their ministry, in ministries or churches. And so Matt and Rachel, they're like, not only is that true on campus, but Mankato as a whole needs more churches that are reaching families and community members with the gospel. So we left that lunch on Friday and then actually went to campus and met Alexa and Gigi. They're two senior students who've been at Minnesota State now, uh, Alexa for three years, Gigi for one year. And one of the things that Alexa was expressing to me, because as we're talking, I said, hey, Alexa, so uh, how do you think Minnesota State students are going to respond when Salt Company comes and starts? And what she said was, I think it's going to go well, because there are so many students who want Salt Company, they just don't know it because all they do is drink. But they want salt, they just don't know it. And one of the most significant reputations that Minnesota State has in the state of Minnesota is being a party school. If you talk to Megan Meyer, a wife of Zach Meyer, he's one of our elders, Megan would tell you that she lived about 30 minutes away from Minnesota State, and she said 30 of her classmates went to Minnesota State, and all 30 of them walked away from the faith when they got there. The reputation of Mankato and Minnesota State is that it's this dark place where very little gospel activity is happening. It's ranked in the top 100 of uh, schools for the party scene, and students are going there and losing and walking away from the faith. And here's the belief that I have. I actually have no doubt that in the next 20 years, our church is going to completely change the reputation of Minnesota State and Mankato. And it's not because I have any confidence in Natalie and I or the people that come with us or any of that. It's because I'm confident that God is powerful enough to break through the darkness and the lies that those students and those community members are believing. And that in 20 years, the reputation of Minnesota State is going to change from the place that students go and lose their faith to the place that students go and find their faith. I have a dream and a prayer that God, that God would work in such a powerful way that the first invitation that students would get when they get on campus is an invitation to Jesus before they ever get invited to a party. And here's the reality. That prayer and that vision is not just for Natalie and I or the people that come with us. Every single one of you is a part of that vision and has a role to play in our church impacting that community in the next 20 years. Because some of you, your role will be to stay here and make sure that Candeo is the healthiest church it can possibly be so that it is a gospel anchor for us on the days that it's hard. For some of you, you need to retire and buy a lake house 10 minutes from campus. There's a lot of those because we need places for connection groups to meet. It'd be awesome. Sacrifice for the gospel, please buy a lake house. We need some of you as mature believers to come, to be elders and deacons of our church, to lead connection groups, to give an example for those of us who are young of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we're going to move in two years, and it's super exciting, and we can't wait, and every single one of you has a role to play in that. Now, here's the reality. Uh, you would think that I'm more all-in on this than my wife. She is actually more all-in. In fact, it's almost scary how all-in she is. Last night, we're driving back. She was trying to convince me that if God gives us a fourth son, that we are going to name him Maverick. She's like, dead serious. She's like, that is going to be his name. I'm like, Natalie, that can't be his name. That's too weird. She's like, no, that, I love that name, and he's going to be named Maverick. I'm like, 
are you sure? And she's like, yeah, other church planners, Austin Wadlow, he named his son Lancey, and like, our son's going to be Maverick. I'm like, if you call him Maverick, I'm calling him Rick. He's going to be Rick Jones for his entire life. I'm never <laughs> once calling him Maverick. So we're excited for all that. Well, anyways, we were driving back last night. One second. There we go. Had to wet, wet the palate. So we're driving back last night, and I told Natalie, hey, this year at Christmas, it's going to be, Christmas, it's going to be incredibly easy to gift shop for me. Uh, if you don't know this, I am very hard to gift shop for. Natalie, I didn't know that until I got married to Natalie. Natalie said, Stephen, you are super hard to shop for gifts. And I said, is it because I'm so incredibly content? And she said, no, it's because you're so picky and it's annoying. <laughs> well, last night I was like, hey, I'm going to be so easy. Any MSU stuff this Christmas, just get it for me. And she's like, okay, that sounds great. So that is why I'm hard to gift shop for, but there's other people that are also hard to gift shop for. Uh, maybe not my brand of particularity and pickiness, but if you've ever gotten the person that you say to yourself, what am I going to get for this person? They have everything they want. You know, that person that just as soon as they want something, they get it on Amazon and you're just like, how do you get someone who has everything they ever want? They're hard to gift shop for. It's a challenge. It's hard. Well, here's a similar question. How do you bless someone who has all the blessing they could ever need? How could you bless someone who's already completely blessed, right? How do we bless that person? Psalms 103 is going to call us this morning to bless the one who is already blessed. How do you do that? How do you bless someone who's already blessed? So what we're going to see this morning in Psalm 103 is very simple. How, what does it mean to bless God? How do we bless him? And then why do we bless him? And what we're going to see is if we can embrace this call to bless the Lord, we will find that when we bless God, it is also the path to being blessed ourselves. That actually behind every sin, insecurity, and fear is a failure to bless God. So what does it mean to bless him? How do we bless him? And why do we bless him? If you have 103 open, uh, go ahead and look there now in verse 1. What does it mean to bless the Lord? All right, it starts like this. My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, like I said, how do you bless God? Now, why is this tricky to answer? Well, when we say that someone blessed me or blessed another person, what we mean is in some way or another, after whatever they did, that person was better off, right? You're maybe a five, and now you're a six. You're better off in some way. Well, how do you bless someone that is totally complete in himself? God is totally satisfied in himself. He is the source of blessing. So what does it mean to bless him? Well, let me give you an illustration, and then we'll look up some passages that will help us define what it means to bless God. So right now we have three kids, Isla, Jack, and Crew. Maverick is maybe on the way. We'll see. I don't know, but Maverick is, you know, a weird name. So we are having a ton of fun, in particular right now with Crew. So Crew just turned one. And one of my favorite things in the last three weeks has been every time I come home from work, here's what Crew does. I'll walk in the door. Crew will immediately hear the door open. He'll look up. He will crawl as fast as he can, which is usually dangerous because he doesn't have a good sense of like heights and stuff. But he'll crawl as fast as he can. And his face is just beaming with joy and delight. And he just is like staring at me and he smiles and he kicks like everything. And he just reaches up for me and he just buries himself into me. And it is like 
the most fun, great like thing I've ever experienced. This one-year-old that is just so full of joy and delight. He's acknowledging, Dad is home. He's captivated by me. He just, it's like he obsesses over me. It is so much fun. I love it. So that, in many ways, I think gives us a picture of what it looks like to be captivated and acknowledged and to bless our Father. Who is blessing me in that moment? Right, by acknowledging who I am, by being captivated by me, by honoring me. That is what it looks like to bless the Lord. Here's the definition that John Piper gives. He says this, to bless God means to recognize his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. Now, where do we see this idea of blessing God come from in Scripture. Well, if you just turn one page back to Psalm 100, you're going to see that this word blessing is put next to a couple other things. So in Psalm 100, verse 3, it says this, Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us, and we are His. His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, and His courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. How do we bless his name? We acknowledge that he is the Lord. We enter with thanksgiving and praise, giving thanks to him. You don't have to turn there, but if you go even further back into Psalms, in Psalm 34, it says this in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. So how do we bless the Lord? His praise is always on our lips. Here are the ideas then, going back to that definition that Piper gave us. To bless God means to recognize, acknowledge his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight, seeing and experiencing it. How do we express it? With thanksgiving, with praise, with worship. That is what we see. That is what it means to bless the Lord. Now, if that's what that means, then how do we do it? Well, look at verse 2 in Psalm 103. Here is how we are to bless the Lord. My soul, bless the Lord. Hold up. Nope. Skipped ahead. Go back to verse 1. Second part of verse 1. My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. How are we to bless the Lord? All that is within me, everything, total, complete, all of me, bless the Lord. Be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude and worship and praise, acknowledging who he is. So often we think about our life as a pie chart. I work 40 hours. I sleep eight hours. I do whatever with my other time. And two hours on Sunday, I worship and praise. But that's a misunderstanding of worship and what it means to bless the Lord. There's a way to work that is worship. There's a way even to sleep that is worship. There's a way to rest and play that is worship. There's a concentrated way to worship, which is probably corporate worship here. Throughout all the activities, we can acknowledge God and be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. And all that within me is not just talking about carrying that mindset into everything I do, but it's also talking about being undivided in my heart that all of my affections are exclusively for God. I can tell when crew is distracted. Usually when I get home and supper's on the table and he's in his high chair. He is the only kid I've ever heard do this, but he just screeches when he doesn't have food. It literally hurts your ears. And in those moments, I'm like, okay, I can tell what crew loves the most right now. His first word was data. His second word was more. Kind of unfair for Natalie, but here we are. Just more, more, more. He just says that constantly. 
His focus is divided in that moment. I'm not the thing that captivates him. There's something else. God is saying that he doesn't just want you to bless him sometimes. He doesn't just want you to bless him most of the time. He wants you to bless him all the time with all that is within you. So that is how we bless the Lord, an undivided affection towards God, that he would be the one that we only love. Okay, now that is the what and the how, why. Why is the Lord deserving of this kind of praise and admiration and blessing? Why should we allow all that is within us to worship him? Now look at verse two. My soul bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. Why should your soul bless the Lord? It's because he has blessed you. Don't forget his benefits. That is why we bless the Lord. That is why we are filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. Now, verses 3 through 19 are going to outline all of the blessings and all the benefits that we have received in God and Christ. So we're going to work through each of these verses and just allow ourselves to be filled with gratitude as we remember the benefits that are from God. So here's how verse 3 starts. It says, He forgives all your iniquity. This is the first blessing. Complete forgiveness. All your iniquity, all your sin is forgiven. The psalm could stop here and we would have enough to praise God for all of eternity. Your sin separated you from God. You and I rejected him and that sin condemned us to death. And eternity separated from him in hell. And if God only forgave 99.99% of your sin, you would still be condemned to death. James 2.10 says that if one keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point, he is guilty of breaking them all. God didn't forgive some of your sin or most of your sin. He forgave all of your sin. Every sin that you ever, ever committed, every moment where you did that which you should not do, every moment where you did not do that which you should do, every moment that you were conscious of your rebellion, every moment where you were unaware of your rebellion, all sin completely and utterly forgiven. Back in April, it was the third to last Salt Company of the Year, and I stood with a guy there in about the fourth row of our auditorium. And he was here for the very first time. I'd never seen him, and I introduced myself to him after the service. And I said, hey, man, like, what, like the first time, what were some of the thoughts you were having during this? He said, man, this was great. I loved it. I enjoyed every moment and everything you were saying I just thought was, was really good and really nice, but honestly, it's not for me. I said, okay, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, what you said were really nice things that I think most people could hear and are true for them, but it's not true for me. God doesn't love me. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you have no idea the things that I have done in my life. You have no idea how bad and wicked of a person I am. You see, that week he had ruined every single one of his friendships because of his sin, and it was his fault. And he came here helpless and hopeless, and he completely believed there was no way that God could love him. And so we went to Acts 9.1, and in Acts 9.1 it says that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the church. And I asked him, hey, have you killed someone? And he said, no. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see what happens to Saul here. 
And we walk through the story when Saul repents and believes because of the Damascus Road encounter that he has with Christ. Then we went to 1 Timothy 1.14. In 1 Timothy 1.14, I had him read it out loud for himself. And it says, this saying is trustworthy, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And I am the worst of them. And I will never forget when, those, when he read those words out loud, his head immediately jotted up from the Bible. And he had a huge smile on his face of disbelief. And tears began running down his cheeks. And he said very simply, I can be saved. I said, yes, you can. Here's the reality. There is not a single person in this room whose sins cannot be forgiven. And not just some of them, but all of them. And here's the other reality. For some of you, you're hearing that and you're like, man, that's awesome for him. For me, Jesus kind of got me the 10% of the way there that I was lacking in myself. I'm pretty good, made it 90%. Jesus made up for that. No, here's the reality. Every single one of us is just as desperate for grace as that man was. Every single one of us is just in as desperate need as the grace that Paul received on Damascus. There's not a single one of us who had anything to contribute to our salvation. You see, Romans 3 teaches us that you are dead in your sins, and not, not only that, but you didn't even have the capacity to seek God. God had to open your eyes to the truths of the gospel, because apart from his grace, there's not a single one of us that can save ourselves, and not only that, choose the things of God on our own. That is how broken and depraved we are. But here is the reality. God did not leave us there, but instead he sent Jesus to die for us so that every sin ever committed could be forgiven. That is the hope that we have in Jesus. God now sees you not as a sinner, but as a saint. He sees the righteousness of Christ, not your sin that separated him. You were once a great, like a throat open to the grave in Romans 3, but now your throat can bless the Lord. That is who you are in Christ and what you've received you don't have to stand before him ashamed and condemned because all of your sin is gone. It is all forgiven. Not only that, he heals all of your diseases. Verse three continued. Not only does he forgive us, but he heals us. He heals us spiritually from the disease of sin. He sets us free from its power. He sets us free from its lies. He sets it free from the decay that it caused in our life, in our relationships. He heals us from the insecurities that it brought. He also heals us physically. We now have the hope of Revelation 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more. It goes on, verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. This is both the eternal pit of hell, but also the present pits that we face. God redeemed us from our bondage to decay and being slaves to sin, condemned to death. He purchased us with his blood and saved our souls. He has given us the hope of eternal life in Christ. He also protects us from the pits of this life, both the pits that come before us because we live in a broken world and also the pits that we dig ourselves. Verse four continues, he crowns you with faithful love and compassion. Before Christ, what was on our heads was a crown of shame, but he has removed our shame and given us a crown of faithful love and compassion. Isaiah 61.3 says that he gave us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He replaced our shame with a crown of love and compassion. But here's the reality. The only way he could give you that crown of beauty is if he himself wore the crown of thorns. 
The only way that your head could be crowned with love and compassion is if his head was crowned with the crown of our sin. But in Christ, that is a permanent crown on you now. There's not a moment where faithful love and compassion are not on your head. Verse 5, he satisfies you with good things. In God, we have blessing upon blessing. It would be enough for him to stop here, to simply save us, but he satisfies us. There's not a longing or desire that is present in your soul that does not find its fulfillment in God. He is our satisfaction. He is our joy. Verse 5 continues, your youth is renewed like the eagle. God renews us with fresh purpose and life in him. We know that physical age is not the end for us. God gives us purpose in life beyond this life here. Verse 6, the Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. God champions our cause. There is, not, there is no injustice that you could ever face here in this life that God will not bring justice towards. All sin will be accounted for. Verse 7 and 8, it says, He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. God revealed his plan of salvation and redemption to Moses and the Israelites. And even when they were faithless in the desert, God continued to have abounding love, patience, slow to anger towards them. These are the blessings we have in God, but it continues verse 9. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. I don't know if you know this, but the word devil also means accuser, the one that brings an accusation. So some of your translations, when you get to Job, it just says simply the accuser instead of the devil. But here's the reality. God is not the accuser. The accuser is Satan himself. But we have a mediator in Christ. Every accusation that the devil could bring before God is met with the rebuttal of grace from Christ. God is not the one who accuses. He will not be angry forever. His anger and wrath were, direct, were directed at you because of sin. But the arrow of anger didn't pierce you, it pierced his son. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. God's wrath was satisfied in Christ. He was crushed so that we could have the peace of God in our lives. Verse 10. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. I don't know about you, but in the midst of hard times, have you ever asked yourself or said out loud, I don't deserve this, or what did I do to deserve this? In the kindest way I can say, what is actually true in that moment is yes, you don't deserve this. What you deserve is far worse. That is not to minimize the suffering that we face in this world or God's compassion towards it. God was so compassionate towards our suffering that he embraced our suffering by becoming a man and dying on a cross. But what it is to acknowledge is that our sin deserves far worse than any temporal suffering we could face on this earth. It deserves eternal suffering separated from God. And here's the reality. Not only is it true for believers in Christ that your sin, yet you are not dealt with according to your sins, 
God actually deals with all of humanity in a way that is gracious and not according to what they deserve. God is, has a common grace towards all of humanity. He is actually restraining us from being as wicked as we possibly can be. What our sin deserves is to be immediately struck down because we have sinned against a holy God and, and, and cursed his name. But God doesn't deal with that. No, 2 Peter 3, 3, 9 says that he is patient with us, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But why is he patient with us? Verse 10 says, don't you know that the day of the Lord is coming? God is patient with us. Our sin doesn't deserve that, but he's patient with us so that we would come to repentance, that we would repent of our sins and find salvation in Christ before the day of the Lord. And as we do, we come into a relationship where forever we will not be dealt with according to our sins. For those who do repent, look at the love that they now have in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the faithful love towards those who fear him. This is the magnitude of his love. For those who fear him, it's this incomprehensible amount of love towards us. As a dad, I often think like for my kids, I'm just, I have this conscious thought. I'm like, there's no way that you understand how much I love you. Like you can't, like you're a four-year-old. You can't comprehend how much I love you as your dad. I don't know if you ever feel that way. But I think that gives us a glimpse of what God, our father, feels towards us as his children. He's looking at us. He's saying, as high as the heavens are from the earth, that is how much I love you. How high is that? I don't know, but I don't think my brain can comprehend it. I think it's really high. I think it's a lot. That is the love that God has for you. If you've ever wondered, does God love me? The answer is yes. Why did God send Jesus into the world? For God so loved the world. It was love that compelled him to send his son to be the sacrifice in our place. That was the statement in 1 John 4.10 that he says, this is love that God sent his son to be our atoning sacrifice. There's no greater demonstration of love for you than that a demonstration. What is true because of that? Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. When he forgave us of all of our iniquity, he completely removed it. He doesn't keep a record of it. It is gone. Okay, how would you feel if I told you that the record of your sin, like there was a, a physical record of your sin, and it was actually 8,595 miles away from here. How would you feel? On the one hand, I'd be like, okay, that's, that's pretty far. I don't, like for reference, east coast to west coast in the United States is 3,000 miles. It's like, okay, that's pretty far, 8,595 miles away, right? Like it would, it's possible to go get, but I mean, that's really far. It's pretty much gone. But on the other hand, I'd be like, but it is possible that somebody could go and get that, right? I mean, that's a, that's a fixed amount of miles to go find that record. I don't want that record out there. That makes me a little nervous, right? Why do I use that number? Well, some of you can probably guess. It is exactly 8,595 miles from the North Pole to the South Pole. But what, what does Jesus say here? What does the Psalm say? As far as the East is from the West, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 8,595, that's a long way, but that's not infinite. East to west, there's no fixed number for that. There, there's an infinite distance between east and west. 
Do you live, though, as if your sins are 8,595 miles away? Is that actually how you operate in a given day? It's mostly gone, but you have this suspicion that at some point it's going to come back up. If I asked you, you'd say all the right answers. I'm saved by faith through grace. I'm forgiven. You'd have those answers. But you feel this subtle guilt about your sin. And the reason that you're working so hard to obey isn't just out of an expression of joy and gratitude. It's out of this pressure that you're feeling to perform before God. Because what if that record is actually 8,595 miles away? And though that's really far away, it might be brought up one day. You're still living as if it's a fixed distance away. You wear a mask in this room because you think you have to perform to be accepted by God and us. You know what that is? That's slavery. If that's how you think of your sin, you are still a slave to your sin. Maybe not in a salvific way, but in your, a functional way, you are functioning as if you are still a slave to your record of wrong. Do you know what Jesus told us that he did to our record of wrong? In Colossians 2, 13 through 14, it says this, And when you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And where did he take it? He took it to the cross and nailed it there. That record is gone. It can't be recovered. God does not have that somewhere and that he's going to bring up and hold against you someday. No, that is as far gone as the east is from the west. That was true of you the moment you put your faith in Jesus. And that can never change. Here's how God treats us now, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The metaphor of father and child to describe the compassion that God has for us. I'm talking about crew a lot, so I'll talk about crew one more time. Crew is doing this super cute thing right now where he'll stand up for 10 seconds and then he'll just fall over. And he is right on the cusp of walking. How, do, how will I respond the day that he takes his first step? He's going to take a step and he's going to fall. I'm going to go, buddy, you took a step. What father would ever say, crew, how are you not running yet? Right? That would be the most moronic thing I could ever say to my son. I'd be like, buddy, you're growing. You're getting stronger. As a father has compassion, so God has compassion towards you. When you're brought into the family of God by sheer grace, you know what you have? You also have daily grace. God's, the, way, the way that he relates to you is still from grace. As you stumble and take steps to follow God, that is met with the grace and compassion of a father. Verse 14 through 18 then highlights the permanence of his love for us. And the way it does this is it's going to contrast the temporary nature of our lives to the eternal nature of God's love. So here's what 14 through 18 says. For he knows what we're made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him, and his righteousness towards the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant 
who remember to observe his precepts. We are from the dust. We are temporary. We are like grass, here for a moment, then gone. Yet, that is not how God's love is. God's love is permanent. It's from eternity to eternity. God's love has been directed towards those who are his covenant people. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is the last blessing mentioned, and it's the blessing of God's lordship in our life, that he is our king and ruler. Now, it's interesting, the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, the themes of those two books highlight our need for a king. So the book of Judges is basically an anarchy. One of the lines that is repeated over and over in Judges is, and there was no king. This horrible thing happens, and there was no king. Judges is one of our darkest, most uh, broken books of our Bible. And the whole point of it is to show us what humanity looks like without a king. That's followed immediately by 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel comes in, and what do the people want? They want a king. So in 1 Samuel 8, they go to Samuel, and they say, give us a king. So Samuel gives them a king, but the point of 1 and 2 Samuel is to show us what happens when our king is not God? What happens to people when they have a king that is not God? And the point of those two books is to show us the goodness of God as our eternal king. To show us the good and flour- the flourishing it brings about when we have a God who loves us from eternity to eternity and would sacrifice his life for us. And when we embrace his lordship, his authority, his kingship in our life, it brings about flourishing. It brings about the design that he created us to have all in response to the grace that we've received. And his rule extends over all. There's not a square inch that his rule is not present. That is why we bless the Lord. Now look how he ends this psalm in verse 20. If that's why we bless the Lord, how does that culminate? Verse 20, bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all of his armies, his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. Now, up to this point in the psalm, it's been intensely personal, contemplative, right? It's my soul, bless the Lord. And David is meditating on all the things personally that would cause him to bless the Lord. But at this point in the psalm, what we see is that it's summoning our souls to join the chorus of angels and armies and all of creation in worshiping and praising the Lord, to acknowledge his greatness and holiness and majesty, to join with heaven singing and blessing the Lord, to join with all of his people and to join with the created world that all point to the glory of God. So let us acknowledge him. Let us be captivated by his beauty and majesty. Let us bless the Lord in all of our life with all that is within us, praising him with praise always on our lips. And in so doing, let us be people who are blessed because of the peace and contentment and satisfaction we find in a God who is good. Let's pray. Lord, what incredible themes to meditate on this morning. God, the themes of your blessings that we've received in Christ. The incredible grace that we have in him. 
God, the forgiveness from our iniquities, the healing that is in him, the salvation and rescue from the pit. God, the fact that there is not a sin that we've committed that is, could ever be re- brought back up because it has been cast as far as the east is to the west. Lord, let us be people who are so confident in the eternal love that you have for us that from eternity to eternity, you have set your love upon us. God, it's beautiful in Deuteronomy 7 that you told the Israelites, I chose you not because of anything in you, not because you were great among the nations, but because I loved you. I have loved you because I love you. Lord, let those realities be the dominant way that we understand our relationship with you. God, and in so doing, let that fill us with gratitude and thanksgiving, worship and praise that all of our life, all that is within us would bless the Lord. God, let us now bless your name, acknowledging your greatness and majesty, filled with thanksgiving and gratitude for the great mercies we have in you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.